0: You know, in, in 2006, I was living in this little small town in Arkansas called Cersei. Uh, My wife and I had been married for about a year, and we took this trip to the Pacific Northwest. We were on a church planning team at the time, and we were trying to discern where God might be calling us to plant a church. And so I'll never forget this trip. Ten of us flew from tiny little town, Arkansas, up to urban Seattle. We land in the airport, and we drive up towards the city center. And everywhere we went, we were kind of wide-eyed, like going, man, this is a different culture (laughs) than what we're used to urban seattle is very different than rural arkansas it's different in the way that people dress it's different in the way that people talk it's different in the bumper stickers they put on their cards different in the food that they eat it is different in so many ways and everywhere we went everywhere we looked we were shocked by the differences that we saw we said man this is a different culture until sunday morning came and we had a chance to visit a little local church there in seattle now uh, this this church was dear uh, awesome people would i remember walking in and being like wait did I just step through like a portal back into rural Arkansas? Because all these people look, talk, act like exactly like everyone in Arkansas, nothing like the people of Seattle. And the more we talked to them, we kind of got this impression that, that they actually lived with this kind of fear of the culture around them. They, they almost came across as though they were just absolutely terrified of the culture that was surrounding where they were living. And it was almost as if they were this cowering minority, living as though they were absolutely terrified, not knowing how to engage the culture, culture. Instead, they had kind of circled the wagons to protect themselves from all the evil out there. You know, I remember leaving that gathering. We met some awesome people. There's some really lovely brothers and sisters in Christ, but I remember just feeling saddened because I thought, man, this is not what we were meant for. <laughs> this is not what the church of Jesus was meant for. We were never meant to be a cowering minority hiding from the culture that scares us. Now when we look back at the story of Acts and the way that the church unfolded, we see that the church was actually living in the midst of a culture as radical culture shapers. You see, we are called as followers of Jesus, not to be those that hide from or cower from culture, but we are called to be those that engage the culture with the confidence of Jesus as those who shape culture. So today we're gonna look at three specific stories in the book of Acts. And how the early followers of Jesus became courageous culture shapers, and we're going to see first that they did this by one living out a culture of shaping uh, culture shaping actions. We're going to see two that they shared a culture shaping narrative, and then third we're going to look and see they adopted a culture shaping strategy. These are kind of the three things we're going to see. And at the same time as we do this, we're gonna kind of compare the the, the strategies, the narrative, the, the the actions of the early church with the culture that we find ourselves in currently uh, in, in this world. And so uh, before we can do this, we gotta kind of recap a little bit of where we've been. Uh, some of you have been reading along in Acts every day. If you weren't aware, we have a reading plan. We're reading a chapter of Acts every day. You can jump in on that and find it online. Um, But if you haven't been following along, two weeks ago, Dave was up here, and, you know, he talked through Acts chapter 1, where he kind of rooted us in our identity. He said, hey, this is who we are. We are power-filled witnesses for Jesus Christ going out into the world. Last week, Joshua got up here, and we looked in Acts chapter 8, where we saw this crazy picture where, although the early Christian community, the early Jesus community, was thriving in Jerusalem, they came underneath such extreme persecution that they began to be scattered all over. And we look at this reality that though they were being scattered, they still went and they preached the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. Now, we're going to jump way ahead to Acts chapter 16, and a lot happens between Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 16. I don't have time to recap all of it, but one thing that you do need to be aware of is that there's this guy named Saul. And in Acts chapter eight, Saul is the guy that everybody is like following into the persecution. So he is, he is the ringleader. He's at the very front of trying to drag followers of Jesus and put them in prison because he is vehemently opposed to their way. And yet in Acts chapter nine, this is amazing story where Saul is heading up to Damascus in Syria and he is going there to persecute Christians and Jesus himself, the resurrected Jesus, appears to him in a bright and blinding light. Saul is convicted of how wrong he is. He turns his life around and he goes from being this persecuting terrorist (laughs) to being the most prolific New Testament writer, more books in our New Testament written by him than anyone else. He goes from being a persecutor to a preacher as he goes from Jerusalem, and he spreads out across Asia Minor all the way into Europe, carrying with him the good news of Jesus everywhere he goes. So in Acts chapter 16, we're going to pick up with Paul. We're going to find Paul. He is in a city called Philippi that is in modern-day Greece. It's a European city, part of the Roman Empire at the time, and we're going to see the story. Paul comes into Philippi, and things are going pretty well for him. And uh, until, until this weird moment, kind of a strange story, uh, where Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl, and the slave owners don't like it, they get mad at him, and they falsely accuse him of all kinds of things, and he finds himself getting arrested and beaten and eventually thrown into prison. So this is where we'll pick up our story, and I want you to pay attention and see if you can identify the culture-shaping actions that we see being lived out by Paul and his friend Silas. Let's look in Acts chapter 16, starting verse 23. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. I I love this story in the book of Acts. You find Paul and Silas being wrongfully accused, treated with injustice, persecuted, put in prison for no reason. And what do you find them doing in the middle of the night? They're not complaining. They're not bitter. They're singing worship songs to God. They're living into this deep joy that's overflowing with them, these actions that don't make any sense to those around them. And so all the other prisoners are listening and watching. Like, what is happening with these guys? And then the moment comes where the earthquake shakes everything and the doors are opened and Paul and Silas don't like bolt out of there as quickly as they can. They don't run, rush upon the guard, draw his sword, and kill him as revenge for the way that he beat them the night before. No, they sit right there, right where they are. They, they don't just do that, but they extend compassion. The jailer, ready to kill himself, they call out say, hey, hey, don't do it. Like, don't do it. We're here. The, the, these actions of theirs that don't make sense through the eyes of the world have this power of changing the very culture right where they are. I love what you see in the jailer's response you know, in just a matter of hours, this jailer goes from on the edge of suicide. I mean, he's got his sword drawn, ready to take his own life. And in just not long at all, it says that he is filled with inexpressible joy. He's washing the wounds of the people he beat the night before. He's serving them food and walking them into his house. What in the world happened to this guy? You see, what happens is we're seeing the power of the gospel of Jesus when it is backed up by these culture-shaping actions that Paul and Silas so willingly lived into. You know, this stands in stark contrast to the culture that we often find ourselves in now. For those of you that are watching that live in America, which I think is most of us, you know, it's like, man, our American culture says a very different thing. It says, hey, if somebody infringes upon your rights, if you feel like somebody's acted unjustly towards you, then you have every right. Our culture says you have every right to take it into your own hands. I mean, guys, it's in our DNA as a nation. We started by a revolution, by a revolt. And I'm not saying that there was anything wrong with that. I'm not trying to cast shade on our our nation's history or anything. But, But it is deep in our DNA that if you feel someone's infringing upon your rights, then you have the right to take it into your own hands and make sure that you can establish your rights. And it doesn't matter if you do that through slander, or through rage, or through looting, or through violence, or any other means. You have a right to stand up for your rights. But you see, we as followers of Jesus who are living in this culture, we have this opportunity to shape the culture in a different way. I love that the Apostle Paul later, he would write a letter back to this church that meets in the same city in Philippi, you know, potentially the church where this jailer was a part of. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, he says, listen, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are good. Rejoice in the Lord when people treat you the way you want to be treated. No, he says rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all not just to those you like, not just to your friends, those who think like you, those who have the same political leaning as you. No, he says, listen, let your gentleness be evident to all. He says, don't be anxious by everything. Lift up prayers and requests to God Almighty. Guys, these are the the, the culture-shaping actions that we're invited to live into as followers of Jesus. See, they didn't just have culture-shaping actions. We also see that they they shared a culture-shaping narrative. And so to see this, we're going to flip over a chapter to Acts chapter 17, and here we find that Paul has—he has found his way out of Philippi. He's journeyed down through the peninsula there in Greece, and he ends up in Athens. And Paul finds himself in Athens. He kind of has a few days to kill by himself. His traveling companions have to part ways and go different ways, and— you know, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a European city with some days to kill or how you would spend your time, but I love how Paul spends his time. Probably not like most of us. Paul walks around, he sees all the idols, he gets kind of disturbed by it, he finds an idol with an inscription to an unknown God, And so he decides he's going to do something about it. You know, stranger out of town, just showing up. You know, what is he going to do? So he goes down to the synagogue. He goes to the marketplace, like the town square. And he goes down there and just starts proclaiming the good news of Jesus and debating with the local philosophers, just the way any of us would spend a day in Europe, right? And so he's having these conversations, and people are listening to what he's saying, and eventually he gets invited to come to the Areopagus to share some of his thoughts. Now, the Areopagus at the time, it was the center for philosophical thinking, for the shop uh, swapping and sharing of ideas. It would be the equivalent of you know, maybe, maybe being invited to, to sit down with a group of philosophy heads at Yale University and get to shape the way that they're thinking. Or maybe a better example would be, it's like getting invited, there's a group of media moguls who have the power to shape the culture around you, and Paul gets invited to the table to share his views on what he thinks about the world and its meaning. And it is here that we're gonna see Paul beautifully, in front of all these other leaders, share the narrative, the culture-shaping narrative that's been handed down to him from Jesus. We're gonna pick up, this is the passage that was read before the Sermon of the Day. We're gonna pick up in verse 24. As we read this, I want you to pay attention and see if you can spot what the narrative is. Now, if you're not sure what I mean by narrative, here's what I mean. You know, a a narrative is is how we got here. It's the story that informs who we are, how we got here. What do we do with our lives while we're here? And where are we going? And see if you can pick up on those things and what Paul says, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. This is the narrative that Paul holds out, this culture-shaping narrative that he holds out to those that are there uh, at the Areopagus, and this is what I want you to hear in this, guys, this culture-shaping narrative. It's the one that we've adopted from Jesus himself, and it says this. It says, hey, first of all, that there is a Father God, a Father God who created all humanity, and in his heart of hearts, he wants to be found by us. That he, he beforehand laid out all of the nations and who would live where so that we would reach out to find him. He's a loving Father who made us and wants us to see him. But it's not just a Father God. We see that he's a merciful God. Paul says, you know, up till this point, he has had mercy in the face of our ignorance. He says, you know, he, he is he has ignored the fact and held back his judgment on the fact that humanity in general has lived in rebellion, chasing after idol worship or chasing after selfish pleasures and selfish gain. He says he's a merciful God. He's held back judgment in the face of our rebellion. And now he's at this moment where he's inviting all people to change their minds and to repent and turn towards him. So he's a father God. He's a merciful God, an inviting God. But finally, he is a just God. Paul says it so plainly. He says, listen, he has set a day, a day yet to come, when he will rise all from the dead, raise all from the dead, and everyone will be judged by Jesus Christ according to the justice of God. Guys, this is our story, and this is where this whole thing is going. This is the narrative Paul lays out, and it's the narrative we have been given now, this contrasts sharply with the narratives that we've been given in our culture, and I say narratives plural because the reality is we have been given a smorgasbord of narratives to choose from. You now think about the American culture specifically. When you ask the question, you know, how did we get here? You know, the most dominant narrative, the one that is taught to all of our children in public schools, is the, the teaching of evolutionary theory that you know, well, we, we just got here kind of by, by evolutionary happenstance, survival of the fittest, and look, here's what came, and now we're at the top, humans, because we just evolved this way. You know, but, but the reality is when that happens, you approach this life very differently because you go, man, if, if that's how I got here, then this life is all that I've got, and so I've got to make the most for myself while I'm here. And You think about the question, uh, how should we live? Our culture offers multiple narratives on that. You know, there's this really common narrative right now that says, hey, how should you live? Well, I'll tell you what, your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. You do you, I'll do me. And as long as what you're doing makes you happy and fulfilled, then that is great. But you know, this presents all kinds of questions and we've seen these really sharply over the last year in our nation. You know, the main problem is, is what about when your truth imposes on my truth? Well, now what are we to do? Well, now we're having to resort to the evolutionary idea of, hey, survival of the fittest, baby. Like, your truth imposes on mine. I'm taking this thing into my own hands, and I'm coming after you to make sure that my truth is protected and taken care of. You see how it starts to get a little bit confusing. Another another narrative about how we should live is the American dream. And it's this kind of idea of, hey, get as much as you can, work as hard as you can, gather up as much material belonging and money as you possibly can so that by the t- time you turn 65, you can reach the pinnacle of human existence, retirement, where you can finally stop working and enjoy all the stuff that you've earned from yourself until you die, and then we don't really know what happens. Guys, these are the narratives. I-, I think about the narrative in our culture. Hey, where are we going? What, what does the future hold? Guys, this is one that's hard to find an answer to. You know, the most clarity I find around the future, I think, and I think this is one of the reasons it unites us so much, the most clarity I find in the future in our culture is talking about how do we save our planet? How do we deal with our planet? And don't hear me wrong, I'm not throwing shade towards uh, conservationism. I I recycle, I love the planet, all these things. But (laughs) here's, and everybody in our office will attest to that. Here's what I want you to know, though, is that when it comes to understanding the future, we have allowed science to become king. We go, hey, what does the future hold? Well, it's only gonna hold anything if scientists can figure out how to colonize Mars. It's only gonna hold anything if scientists can figure out how to reverse global warming and save this planet that we're walking on. And in that case, we start looking towards the future of our planet, then we are all about science coming up with all the answers. And here's one of the things that just kind of strikes me as odd is that we really want objective truth when it comes to saving our planet. But man, we will resist objective truth foot, tooth and nail when it comes to figuring out how to save the human soul. Why is that? Why is it that we will embrace the most objective thing possible for the planet, but when it comes to the salvation of a human soul, our culture goes, eh, to each his own. Whatever you say is right. Guys, the gospel offers narrative on both the planet and the human soul. The gospel says that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You can read about that in Revelation 21, Isaiah 65. It's so plain, so clear. New heaven, new earth. The gospel offers hope for this planet. The gospel offers hope for the human soul. That one day we will rise and those who have put their faith in King Jesus will go on to eternal life with him. Guys, this this narrative that Jesus has handed down to us, he has given us a culture-shaping, life-changing, future-oriented narrative that has the power to change the human life, to change your life. And those of us who are followers of Jesus are called to hold out this narrative boldly, unashamedly, for others to see it, for others to believe in it, and for others to find the hope that that Philippian jailer found that night when he was willing to take his own life and suddenly everything got turned around. Guys, Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel narrative today will be labeled as embarrassing, as offensive, as outdated. But guys, will we be the ones who will stand with Paul and say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to bring salvation to all who will believe for you, for me, for everyone you know. This is the culture-shaping narrative that's been handed down to us. And so we see these culture-shaping actions, these culture-shaping narrative. And I know some of us may go, well, wait a minute, Aaron. I, you know, I get it, culture-shaping action narrative, but who am I? I don't have a platform. Nobody listens to me. Where am I going to share this narrative? You know?" I, and I think that leads us into the final thing that we're going to look at, which is a culture-shaping strategy. We're gonna see Paul employ a culture-shaping strategy when it comes to getting the word out about this. Flip over to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, we're gonna read verses eight through 10. And here's what's happening. Paul has now left Athens. He's left Europe, he's come back to Asia Minor, and he finds himself in the city of Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul is going by the same strategy. He's gone to the synagogue and tried to share the gospel. But something happens that makes him suddenly change his approach for how he's gonna do this. Look in verse eight. Of Acts chapter 19, it says Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that, listen to this, All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Guys, this is mind-blowing. Paul stumbles upon a strategy that somehow enables him to get the word, the gospel, the narrative of Jesus into the ear of every Jew and Greek in the entire province. (laughs) How did it happen? How did they do it? You see, he went from trying to get the biggest platform to spending the most consistent time just day in and day out with ordinary people. He goes into this little lecture hall, and day in and day out, he's teaching from the Word, he's teaching them the story, and he does this for two straight years. Guys, the way that he did this is just slow and steady discipleship, slow and steady disciple-making in real time, in real life. You know, He just pulled one out of the playbook of Jesus, his leader. How did Jesus change the world, guys? He didn't get the biggest platform he could. You know, instead, he spent, he spent day in and day out with 12 guys that he invited into his life for three straight years. Ordinary time around campfires, on a fishing boat, sharing stories on a hillside, sharing meals together, celebrating the good things in life and grieving the hard things in life. He did it all together with them, and this is the way that Jesus changed the world. And Paul does the same in Ephesus, and look what happens. Guys, the, the culture we're living in so often says, "Hey, man, if you want you want to make a difference, you want to make a change, well, you got to go big or go home, baby." It's like you got to go in all the way. You need a platform. You need a place where everyone's going to hear you. You need to be the leader of a megachurch. You need to be uh, insta-famous. You need to be a social media influencer. You got to find that viral blog. You've got to find the viral, viral YouTube video that finally everybody will hear your voice and you can make a difference. You've got to go big. But guys, this is not the strategy that's been handed down to us from our Lord Jesus. It's not how he did it. No, he did the slow and steady work of being in the life of people around him. Jesus was never Time Magazine, Person of the Year. Jesus didn't have a platform to get everything he said out to the masses. He entrusted it to 12 people who would take it and carry it with them. You know, I, I think about few years ago, I had this discipleship group, a group of five or six guys that were meeting at my house, and I came up with this plan. I was like, yeah, man, I, I'm gonna, a six-month plan. I'm gonna take these six dudes, I'm gonna walk with them for six months, and at the end of it, they're gonna go, and they're gonna start their own groups, and then they're gonna start their own groups, and we're gonna st- disciple the whole city. I had it all worked out in my head, you know, and yeah, we started, we got about four months in, and I'd only covered like a quarter of the material that I wanted to cover with them, and I'm like, ah, oh, this felt like such a failure, you know, like, what am I doing? I remember one night I ended up sitting around the picnic table with those guys in my backyard. And I just finally said to them, I said, guys, you know, I thought this thing was going to be six months. We're four months in. I'm way behind. I'm really sorry. I'm a failure. You know, all, all this stuff. And, and, and they're looking at me just with this confused look on their face. And they're like, Aaron, we don't, we don't care about the timeline. I'm like, oh, you don't? I'm like, no, we don't care about that. Like, we're excited just to get time with you. We're excited just to hang out and and form this little community that we've got of guys that love each other. And I was like so confused. I'm like, oh, uh, awesome, that's great, guys. And, and I, I changed course. Instead of putting a time limit on it, I, I pretty much ended up spending two years with those guys, walking with them week in, week out, some weeks great, some weeks not, just doing the ordinary thing of opening the Word, reading it together, sharing my life, letting them see me as a husband, letting them see me as a father, letting them see me as a friend, and most importantly, as a follower of Jesus. At the end of that two years, I remember just being so pumped and watching two of those guys go start groups in their own house. One of those guys started discipling other men in his workplace every day over lunch. He would meet with different groups of men to start discipling them and sharing with them the ways of Jesus. You see, guys, this is the culture-shaping strategy. It's for all of us. So many of you are going, what am I to do? I I think specifically about (laughs) moms— stay-at-home moms, or those that have become stay-at-home moms, whether they wanted to or not in the last year. And you sit at home every day, and you're like, how can I make a difference? I'm just going to tell you, you are getting more access to your kids right now than anybody ever will. You are changing culture by investing in them because they will be the culture shapers. You're making disciples. Some of you go, no, I'm just a college student. Oh, I'm just a, a business professional. Oh, I, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just whatever. And it's like, no, guys, all of us can do this simple strategy of making the choice to invest and pour into the people that are in our lives in an intentional way with culture-shaping actions, with a culture-shaping narrative. We can change the culture around us. We can all do this. Single, married, young, old. I want to just encourage you, guys, this is who we are. As, as we see the world around us changing, you know, I'll hear people talking sometimes like, oh man, culture's gonna change so quickly. They're gonna be against the church. They're gonna be against us. It's like, guys, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We will not be a cowering minority. It's not who the church is. It's not who Ethos Church will be. No, we will be those who live into the culture-shaping actions of Jesus. We will boldly share the culture-shaping narrative of Jesus, and we will adopt the culture-shaping strategy of Jesus of living intentionally right where we are with the people that are in our lives. And in this way, I believe we will change the culture everywhere we go in Nashville and beyond. Are you in for that? Do you want that? I think this is what's being held out for us. You know, as in a minute, Will's going to lead us in another worship song, and then we're going to take communion together. There's going to be some questions for you to wrestle with, and I, as we're singing this worship song, I just want you to think, I want you to ask yourself honestly, what narrative am I living by? Am I living by the American dream? Am I living by survival of the fittest? Have I really believed and put my faith in the culture-shaping narrative that is the gospel of Jesus? Let's allow the Lord to search our hearts. And if you've never put your faith in that narrative, you can do it. You can do it today. Whether you're by yourself, you can send us an email in the live chat, or if we're the group of people, you can tell them, you can say, hey, I want that narrative that offers me truth and hope. I believe in Jesus. You can do it, and we will walk with you through it. I love you, Ethos. I'm so excited to be on this journey with you. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into worship together. Lord, we praise you that you have not left us without, without direction, without guidance. You have shown us how to live, the actions that will define us. You've shown us the story that is behind us and that goes before us in the narrative. And Lord, you've given us a simple, easily executable strategy help others get in on the glory that is your gospel. Lord, you fill us with your spirit as we worship. Join us as we commune. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Ethos. Love you so much. Let's worship the Lord together.